0: Hello everyone and welcome to Two Crickets in a Film Tree. I'm Gabriel Krauser, your co-host, joined with... Nicholas Lorimer, your other co-host.
1: Yes, here we are, day one Brazilian and four of the plague lockdown. Yep. It's very exciting. The sun is setting, uh, it's a Monday, and we feel very guilty about the
0: fact that it's a Monday. Yes, no, of course. But uh, I think our listeners have lowered their standards enough over the weeks to know that uh, we're not always exactly on time, but we apologize nonetheless.
1: Yeah, we like to perform. We like to start out with a performance of guilt because that just seems to be something in the air. And and we no, don't and want to be
0: left out. We're guilty too. Exactly. And we, we're, we're being honest. I mean, we could lie and say that we're late for some good reason, but we're really not. Yeah. No, there's no good reason. Anyway. so. Let's get to the show. Um, we're going uh, to we've start had out dis- with disastrous news on the COVID front, which is that a cat has tested positive in the United Kingdom for COVID. However, it, is I it thought this was going to be a story about a cat video on the internet. No, 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 no. A cat has tested positive for coronavirus in the UK. It's one of the few animals who's managed to catch COVID. Uh, I think there was an animal who died of COVID. It was also a very old, sick, diabetic cat that died of COVID in the early stages. I think it was in Hong Kong. However, however luckily this cat has made a full recovery. And uh, well, so its owners. <laughs> so, you know, you take the good with the bad. Um, here's a question for you. How many people do you know personally who have gotten COVID? So, um,
1: my mo- I saw my mom yesterday and she told me, about a woman that she and my sister knew very well. Uh, a producer in Maureen, I don't want to get her name wrong. She, she was a legendary sort of casting agent, maybe the greatest casting agent in South Africa, passed away recently of COVID. Um, and my mom had a student, no, or yeah, who passed away of COVID. Um, so she knows two people who've died from it. In my circle, I just uh, saw some friends over the weekend who had actually left Johannesburg and gone to uh, like their game farm, basically, in the countryside to at the start of lockdown to sit it out. And the first person that they met there was like a vet. Uh, and the vet had COVID and gave them COVID, so they all got COVID, but they all recovered COVID, yeah. fine.
0: Very good uh yeah no i've i've had i think what five people i think i know have had COVID. uh one of them is in icu luckily none of them have died and the one in icu seems to be getting better so that's good that is good um but yeah no it 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 is it it really changes things when it sort of comes to people you know it you know it starts off as this distant headline in china and it creeps closer and closer and closer until your family and relatives and all that have it as well um yeah it is quite yeah. insidious in that way. But that's not actually what we wanted to talk about today. It is. that. Uh, well, but have... no,
1: but while we're talking personal stuff, I just want to say my cousin got married uh, over the weekend. Congratulations. And I'm flippin' chuffed and also very jealous because uh, she got proposed to after I proposed to my fiancé. Mm. And this is like the third marriage that I'm quite close to where the proposal came after my proposal. And I wanted to get – and it's just making me very antsy to get married. Uh, and they and they sort of eloped because they just couldn't get the you know they had a wedding plan we had our wedding plan for June for May and then theirs was going to be in June so the whole family caravan was going to sort of come up and then go back down um, but they they
0: they they just went ahead the rascals so I'm very happy for them but also but also slightly like, jealous well yeah hopefully hopefully you shall be married soon sooner rather than later um that there's been some good news on the COVID stuff which is it looks like the vaccine things are coming along pretty well and uh the uk and the us have ordered big batches to start kind of rolling out at the end of the year uh so we'll see yeah but anyway uh let's get on this which is that you have a hot take a dashing new theory about about everything there we go the cause of the cause of the problems of everything
1: okay so the source of all evil coming from the state is family values that have been misplaced. That's the theory. Now, I'm not saying it's right, but let I just want to entertain the theory. Okay. And I want to start where we had a podcast about this last year about uh, where communism is a good idea. Yes. And uh, I thought that was a really good podcast, and we kind of came up with the idea while we were doing the podcast, which is one of the nice things about the show. Um, but the basic thought was that Uh, from everyone according to their ability to everyone according to their need is a really good way to organize a family. So when you sit down to dinner, like my fiancé definitely earns more than me, uh, but I eat more than her, right? We don't don't serve out the portions according to who's bringing more bread to the table. We serve out the proportions according to, like, I weigh twice as much as her, uh, so I I need to eat a little bit more (laughs) because that's how it works. And then when you with the family and there's my nieces and nephews who are like little kids, like, no one's like, you guys didn't make any money so you're not allowed to have any food. Right? That Which is, by the way, my favorite line. This is like Samuel Undong, the great whisper from South Korea uh, that no one ever hears. How did they get their country to be so great? Samuel Undong. And one of the great slogans was, if you don't want to eat, that's okay, but don't... Sorry, if you don't want to work, that's okay, but then don't eat. And there were government campaigns in the 60s like try and have two meals a day on every Wednesday and Thursday uh, unless you've recently got a promotion. Like, <laughs> So I that's think that can call. work, but it doesn't work in the family. In the family, you want to give, you know, and if kids, if you know, everyone must just contribute in their own way from everyone according to their ability to everyone according to their need. That sounds like Christmas to me, man.
0: So I think yeah, that's no, it's great, but you misplaced that. Things. You, you 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 try and uh, do that at a national level, well, and it's, it's a not. Screw. It's not like family analogies are very foreign to any sort of conception of the state. Going back to the earliest days, you look at like uh, ancient Sumerian kings and stuff. They say things like, "I am the father of the people." Or uh, Confucius writes about how the ruler of the state must be like a father to his people, and his and his subjects must be like his sons, uh, obedient in all things. So, like, the idea of the state basically just being the enlarged family is a very old one and probably is the most basic form of a state, right? It's just yeah. saying, look, the normal kin group we have is actually, we're just going to include more people in that kin group now. Uh, that's yeah. effectively make, what it says.
1: Make the circle bigger. But so
0: I'm I'm trying to get into, like, the 19th, well, 20th that, century. That works, I mean, for a little while. But then once you start yeah. to get above sort of 200, 300, 400, 1,000 people, you then start to encounter some problems. Um, but this, 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 and you encounter very real problems, uh, well, we'll let, let's explain that.
1: Yeah, so, okay, so the Marxist one is just one way. The next way is the fascist one. And so the fascist guys, they're really preoccupied with genetics. You, you're sort of either in the in-group or in the out-group, you're either part of the national project or you're not, depending on some bloodline. And you know my theory on on family values is like, her uh, genetics do matter. So I'm not trying to say that adoption is not on. Also, I've just spoken about marriage. Like, I want to make a family. Like, when you marry someone, that becomes a family unit. And obviously, you don't share genes unless you are Daenerys Targaryen or some <laughs> some, some live like, in a your, very
0: small village somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, unless you're marrying your cousin or whatever. It's like you know, you there, there's obviously no genetic connection, but you but you are in a family. So well, I, I'm not saying that gene- all human
0: beings are cousins, but mm. continue.
1: So so I'm not saying genes are everything, but I am saying that it's pertinent. And for example, if you, you you've got a family, uh, classic sort of husband and wife, and they've got two kids, and then one of the kids is like two years old, and then has to go to the hospital for something, and then the doctors do blood tests, and they're like, this is weird and then they do genetic tests, and they're like, well, it turns out that you're not the father, then that's going to be an important conversation to have. It could break up the family. The family could stick together, but it's going to be pertinent. It's going to be an important conversation to have. It's going to be relevant. So genetics are relevant to families. Um, Not trumping, uh, but they're relevant. And uh, yeah, when you you start thinking genes are what get you into – uh, a first-class citizen status or what excludes you from a first-class citizen status, then you've got the fascist archetype, race nationalist archetype. So that's another way that things can go wrong. Now the third way that things can go wrong uh, which I'm very fond of kind of highlighting because I think that it's something that is under-analyzed is the responsabilization, infantilization uh, oscillation that parents Subject their children to and I think this is very healthy. So what do I mean by infantilization? I mean Like during lockdown I was staying with my family with my sister and her partner and their two kids four and seven years old And my seven-year-old nephew is a bright spark. He's brilliant. He's like precociously intelligent and very engaging So a lot of the time Speaking to him is like speaking to you Nick Uh, That's not saying much (laughs) No, man, it's pleasant uh, and it's and it's and it's real and it's human, but some of the time he's like a I Don't know. He's you know He, he the, the hormones kick in and it's like he's on cocaine and it's just me 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 and like don't he's like shouting at his sister don't touch my stuff and You know, he's like a crazy person and I can't really reason like there comes a point where I can't reason with him uh, and, and 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 I stop treating him like an agent I stop treating him like a responsible agent and I start treating him like the weather uh, or like a flood or something, you know, something to manage and try and control uh, and definitely to make excuses for. Like, I mean, this hasn't happened, but I suppose another, you know, if we were, if we were out somewhere and he, I mean, he, I don't, he wouldn't do this, but if we were out somewhere and uh, you know, your your child strikes another child um Unprovoked, then then you know I think the right thing to do for the parent is say i 'm sorry like i 'm owning up to this i 'm sorry, and then try and get the kid to say i'm sorry, um, if they break something, you pay for it right but that 's infantilization have responsibility for them when you take responsibility for other people 's actions, so that 's infantilization and responsabilization is this nice concept from philip Pettit, uh, old princeton uh, philosopher, uh, and his thought is. Uh, he starts with um like teenagers. And the thought is like you have a 15-year-old or a 13-year-old, depending on how your family's structured, and you say, Look, we're gonna go away for a few hours and you're in charge of the house. Yeah. Or we're gonna go away don't, for a week and you're in charge. Don't burn of it the down
0: house. and feed yourself.
1: Yeah. And that person, that 13-year-old or 15-year-old, or 16-year-old, or whatever it is. It's not—he is not really a responsible agent. If something really does go wrong, you're going to have to step back in and fix it up, and take ownership of it. Like if he does burn it down, like you're going to pay for it. Um, but you're giving him a bit of a go, so it's like a little exercise. You drive the car, you can hold the steering wheel. You know, it's these moments where you give temporary control to something. You act as if someone is a fully responsible adult agent, even when they're not. And the thing is, you have to—that's training is that's the rehearsal for being a
0: grown-up yeah that's that's coming up coming of age
1: so 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 i think a lot of parenting can be abstracted to sort of you know sometimes treating your kids like they're grown-ups and sometimes treating them like they're infants sometimes treating them as if they're agents uh even though they're not fully agents and sometimes treating them as if they're just the weather even though there actually is an agent in the vicinity or something like an agent in the vicinity and also at the end of life if people are you know, dementia, or if, if you've got someone in your family. I've got a couple of close friends who have uh, clinical diagnoses of, of psychiatric disorders. You know, sometimes you have an episode, and then th- then you infantilize right. the person yeah. in the sense that you you take control over them.
0: Yeah, when someone uh, believes
1: that they're a toaster, you don't let them sell their house. Yeah, yeah, it's just not friendly. So, so I think that's like oscillating between infantilization and responsabilization is like a major part of most people's lives. I we we're not explaining it, we're just giving examples of it. Like I think this would resonate with a listener who's who's been in a family or if you went in a family who's been in a boarding house or, or something that sort of approximates it. But now if you if you superimpose that onto a national picture or onto a state picture, you start seeing what we were talking about with this white burden supremacy, with this Leopold style colonialism. Leopold II, king of Belgium, was the world's most famous philanthropist in the late 1800s. Everyone thought he was a really great guy because he's like, this is what white people how, should do. How did you describe him? He the, uh,
0: the social justice warrior
1: of the, of
0: the lo- end of last century.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, and and his, his modus operandi was totally like, we must be the mother. We as in white people must be mothers to, to non-white people. Uh, and take care of them, and if they screw up, we must like you know fix it up, and we must responsabilize a bit, but you must never give proper control or proper respect or proper agency um, because in some kind of mythic neo darwinian sense uh, uh, you you 're dealing with children here um, and it 's like i don 't know man i think it's i think it 's a really like I said, I think it's an under-analyzed, kind of gross way that things work out. And I do think that, you know, we spoke about Thomas Sowell a little bit, his literature uh, in that Buddha Dipenar episode. You know, I think that is his thesis. Like what happened is America had this racist system of slavery and Jim Crow, and it was a very obvious kind of racism. But racism, sort of the, the state's effective discrimination and oppression of, so many black people it didn't go away it just changed its inflection it changed from being this sort of authoritarian dad style bully bossy kind of thing that you were describing with the old school leaders confucian days and so on to uh, a more stereotypically kind of mothering maternal yeah
0: yeah so the 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 matriarchy i worry about the the mom who spoils you and lets you get away with anything kind of kind of uh, attitude, yeah, but still treats you like a child.
1: Yeah, who infantilizes you, uh, you know, you you don't have to, if you do something wrong, it's not really your fault. It's always the fault of the system. Uh, if you, uh, you know, incentives not to work, incentives to break up families um, and step in as the caregiver. Uh, and, and, and Sal's argument is sort of this data is this, you know, I'm being quite metaphorical here. He he looks into a lot of particular policies, a lot of particular education uh, reforms that that backfired, housing, public housing reform that backfired. Um, but I'm trying to give a – I'm just trying to give a flavor of why people feel attracted to it in the first place. And I think the metaphor – yeah, Or as uh,
0: Joe Biden says, poor kids are just as smart as white kids.
1: Yeah, dude, Hamilton – yeah, that's the matriarchy right there. And I think that the, the, the metaphor is, I was speaking uh, uh, about this with one of my colleagues who is very close with his mom. who has got a very dynamic mother. And, uh, and so feels, you know, he was like, yeah, this is really interesting uh, because, because so much of what motivates the, you know, some of it, so much of what's tragic about the woke is that you feel the good intentions, you feel how hard they're trying to help other people out. Samantha Weiss, the head of the philosophy department at Witz writes a few years ago, you know, what a white person really must do is be quiet and tell other people to be quiet, to make room for, for other people to speak. And I was like, this, this is like a dinner party that I've been to many times as a little kid. My mom takes me to the grown-up dinner party. And now and then if she thinks I'm a bit sulky, she'll be like, you know, what was that joke you just told me? Say it louder so everyone can hear, kind of. Policing the public space to to help me out to to let my voice shine You know, this is just Samantha Weiss at a national level and 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 my colleague's point is like yeah This is quite a nice explanation But but maybe it's a bad explanation because you actually stop maybe maybe it's getting people to sympathize too much with the work Way of doing things the Leopold way of doing things and I was like nah, dude Infantilization is great of actual infants. It's terrible of grown-ups and here's one way to know that imagine a mother holding her child to her breast and feeding him when he's 20 years old that's
0: just disturbing
1: so i think if if people hold if yeah i think once you've heard it it's 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 kind of hard to forget and that's the work problem that's my that's my kind of uh, family values take on on what goes wrong when people of one race try t- to effectively infantilize people of another race with this good intention and it's and it's and it's the same story each time it's like it is a good it's those family values are really good you really should infantilize infants and you really should try and responsabilize teenagers which means not giving them full responsibility but just these little rehearsals genetics really should matter one reason genetics really should matter is like so much of what families are about are creating new children and for a lot of people that is going to just be in the old-fashioned way of a genetic exchange uh, of chromosomes and it's, it's quite a magical thing <laughs> and 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 the first one of from everyone according to their ability to everyone according to their needs i think that's a beautiful line for like how to think about dinner um with a yeah. family so those, know- they're really good things but 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 it's like arsenic there is arsenic in your body if yeah. it's in the right place and the right delusion, it's fine. If you put it all together in the wrong place, it is deadly. It's,
0: it's very bad. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's some great examples of this kind of paternalistic workness that we, we were talking about. Like Maternalistic. Pater, m- maternalistic, paternalistic, whatever. Um, you know how You know how when your kids dress up sometimes and they, like, pretend to be an adult – and you go, oh, that's so cute. And you encourage them to do it. You know, it's kind of like kind of fun. Um, uh, or, or they have some very clever yeah. thing that they learn from TV. And you encourage them to say it over and over again to everyone, right? Like, like like, you just said with your mom there in the joke or something like that. Yeah. Well, don't you kind of get the feeling that when you see like uh, I saw some, the head of Black Lives Matter or something at Oxford. It's this uh, young black woman uh, wearing a black beret giving speeches from a microphone, holding a fist, trying to look like Che Guevara or Lenin or something and she's like calling for revolution and saying the British police are the same as the KKK. Yeah. Like there's a whole kind of unspoken element of, ah, isn't that cute going on from her white allies? And it's really disturbing because it implies that it's uh, so nice that these people are, 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 pl- are play-playing at being serious political figures. Uh, you okay. also see it in the insistence by woke people that there be like, for example, black-only spaces. Because there's yeah. this kind of sort of strangely sick belief that, oh, well, you know, they need to develop their own things, you know, for yeah. themselves that are not polluted by all this ugly whiteness. And so you'll put them in a little corner and, and the black people over there can go over there and, and they'll finally be able to talk to each other and develop things for themselves um, as though they don't already have <laughs> those things yeah. themselves. As, these, as if these are whole grown human beings. who like <laughs> Exactly. <They> participate <laughs> fully in the cultural world in which they live, the political world in which they live. I mean, like the idea that you know, black Americans kind of haven't been able to make their, themselves felt in the United States and its society and its politics is just kind of, it's whack. You have to be delusional. Yeah. You
1: know, (laughs) and I think, but I think, but I think if you, the, the playpen, you know, there's, there's a, there's a wonderful restaurant in Melville that we sometimes go to. And there's another one by zoo Lake where you've got the kiddies area, right? And it is so nice to have like a kiddies area where the kids go and play and there is like a responsibility to police it and make sure there's no creepy pedophiles getting in there and to, and to you know I think that these are deep instincts and I think that and they're very powerful and and in particular they, they operate it's funny that you should uh, bring up this point that from the beginning there was this overt metaphor of the family being like the state um, something about there's something great about the fact that we stopped talking that way. We stopped talking about the father of the nation, and we started talking about the Fatherland and, and Mother Russia. So it became a little bit more abstract. At the you same really time, see it in, yeah. When you lose that, when it becomes more abstract, it's easier for those instincts to then just play out unchecked. And this is what I'm trying to say. Like the great thing about. The the thing that history has given us and that we must not lose is the fact that we know what a, a proper fascist looks like. We know what someone who's obsessed with genetics at a national level looks like. And we know to be horrified by it. And so you can make that connection to be like, you're being like that guy. Don't do that. And we know what a proper Marxist looks like. Someone who's really trying to distribute things like like this whole country's a family, and we know what the effects are, and we know how gross it is and so we are like happy to say don't do that you you're being like daddy or mommy trying to share the goodies equally amongst the kids and this is we're not kids, but we don't I think often enough highlight this um, motherly or fatherly attitude of paternalistic transferred white race nationalists or wokies or or white burden supremacists who think, dude, and the thing about the, the, this, this line is that it, we talked about the white man's burden, this poem. And I, and I went back and I reread it, sort of filling in, instead of uh, race, black and white, I filled in parents and children. And I was like, this poem, it's amazing to me. No one's done this. But after 100 years, suddenly this poem makes perfect sense. Because the whole poem is like, you've got to help the kids out. They're going to be ungrateful. Sometimes they're not going to get it. Sometimes they're going to entertain you, but a lot of the time it's going to be disappointing. You're going to teach them lessons that they're not going to learn, and you're going to have to teach them again, and you're going to have to teach them again. And at the end of the day, you don't need, a, you mustn't look for their respect. You've got to look for the respect yeah. of your partner. And this is good parenting, right? You mustn't. If, if you just want to do what the kid wants, you're going to end up spoiling them. I want another sweet, okay, here's another sweet. I want another sweet, here's another sweet. It's the other parent who's going to look at you like, oh, you're trying to be the favorite parent now, feeding them all the sweets, and then I'm going to be the one who deals with the vomit later. Nah, that's the respect you're looking for. You're looking for love from your kids, but when they're little and they don't have the metacognitive ability to really ground those judgments that are preconditions of, of genuine human respect, you, love is what you got to take when you can get it and respect is what you got to look for from your partner and and that's his and that's uh kipling's message is like white people should only look for respect from other white people and they should try and cultivate love from black people who who can't be expected to get the lessons and 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 so must be forced and trained and imposed upon and so on and it's like Oh, when I looked at it's, it's when I reread the poem with that um, Image in mind that I was like dude kipling is like a, a woman trying to put a grown man to his breast to feed him. This is Flippin yeah. revolting infantilization So this is what it it's
0: interesting. It's interesting to me these ideologies You know, we talk about how at the end of the uh, the 19th century They they kind of took off and we you talk about it a lot in relation to race but actually, these kind of paternalistic theories uh, conquered the world in, lo- in a lot of ways at the beginning of the 20th century. So you had kind of three brands of them, and they weren't all entirely this, but they had large elements of this. Um, the one was kind of technocratic progressivism, which is very popular in the United States. Um, you had fascism, of course, um, and you had communism. Now, progressive, progressive technocracy was quite interesting in that it sort of it, 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 it believed you know imagine you had a parent who was like very controlling of your life and made you want to be an overachiever and who had mm. planned who planned every social occasion for you for the rest of your life you know who had decided who you were going to marry that was them, right they said we'll construct society in this extremely ordered rational way which will achieve maximum outcomes uh, and we'll mm. use a little bit of eugenics to make sure that the population rises up so they become more intelligent like us their uh, technocratic parents um Hmm. and and so it was it was kind of the first version it was like the a type personality mom version of this paternalistic theory of governance and it was all the rage uh it dominated the united states i mean both woodrow wilson and uh teddy Roosevelt, um and to some degree fdr were Hmm. all you know completely on board with the strategy um and, of course, fascism was more like the hard father who says, no, we're going to put the child out to do hard manual labor in the garden so that he grows a strong muscles and a backbone and knows exactly what to do. And yeah. he's gonna have, we're going to we're going to we're going to responsabilize him in a certain way. But he's still got to listen to us all the time. Yeah. Uh,
1: that dad who never lets go of control or mom, by the way. Obviously, we're using these stereotypes. It's not to say. Yeah. Like, but the kind like of, I, I was brought up by a single mother. so. I know very much
0: about a mother who's who's, who's very no, exactly. uh, strong, but, but it's kind of but, like yeah, a, yeah. the stereotypical masculine ideal of the the hard father who makes you do things. And these these images and metaphors were often invoked uh, in yeah. these, these early decades, um, like Hitler, father of the nation, the Führer, the leader. He's like you must listen to father. Father knows best. Yeah. Uh, and these these ideologies, I think, work on some degree because they're so seductive to that like reptile part of our brain. Yeah, um, it makes sense, and and one of the reasons is because so there was a German sociologist who came up with these. Uh, I can't really pronounce his name, Ferdinand Tonnies. That's not how you pronounce it, but that's how its name is written. Well done. Um, he came up. He came up with a. I didn't even try there. <laughs> no. no. He, he, was, he was a German sociologist. He came up with uh, these two concepts, two different types of societies. One was the Gemeinschaft, and the other one was the Gesellschaft. So the Gemeinschaft is the communal society and the Gesellschaft is the associational society. So the communal society is what I would call sort of the natural human state of affairs. Uh, So he just used it to describe, in his case, rural peasant societies um, that have like face-to-face relations with each other. And everything is kind of governed by like moral sentiments and emotions. And, you know, you just kind of try to make things work. It's It's a society where everyone kind of knows each other and for the most part, looks out for each other. And a family is exactly that, right? It's a combined shaft. Yeah. Yeah. It's a communal family. It's not governed by laws and stuff. Then there was the gesellschaft, which is kind of the more modern version of of a society. This associational society is where there's like a more degree of rational calculation in how people interact with each other, right? So this is when you go to the shop and you buy something. You don't know anyone who's involved in the production of the good. You don't know the cashier really. You maybe have said hello to them once or twice. Um, Yeah. But you still transact and cooperate together in yeah. order to achieve your ends, right? And it's a society that's very inter, in, uh, not, not very personal, right? You don't have to know everyone. In fact, you never can know everyone. Um, and they're usually very large. So one of the big problems, uh, and this is a line I'm going to steal from my favorite political writer, Jonah Goldberg, is that a lot of these ideas mix the Gemeinschaft and the Gesellschaft. They try to put your, the Gemeinschaft shaft in the Gesellschaft. They say, "Look, we live in this horrible, isolating, alienating society that uh, you know Doesn't no one knows. Anyone, if no one works together. Yeah, no one, no one cares about anyone else. Communism is very big on this, right? Especially mm. uh, the, the no one cares for anyone. The poor are just left to die in the streets. The rich just roll around in their their mansions, their decadent nests, covering themselves in money and filthy, filthy and uh, plunder." And yeah. honey, of course. Uh, and so what we need to do is we need to bring these kind of family values. We need to bring these gemeinschaft, uh, sorry, these, yeah, these gemeinshaft ideas into the larger society. But, of course, it doesn't work. It just infantilizes people. And it almost always denig- uh, you know, dehumanizes people and allows for the abuse of them. Um, because once people are children, they can be disciplined like children. Um, they can be treated like, uh, uh, you know, uh, they can be treated more expendably. Yeah. Um, instead of going being made to sit in a corner, they can be, you know, killed. In fact, after a while, when these ideas are taken to their logical extent, people stop being people and start being more like a herd of sheep. You know, what do we do for the herd? We need to... Uh, uh, make it stronger but that means getting rid of the genetically deviant ones that's what fascism is very big on or that cow over there is always pushing the others away from the food trough so it must be exterminated
1: get rid of the that selfish would be like ones
0: communism. yeah exactly um so the moment you start putting your communal society and your associational society you just get tyranny and chaos every single yeah. time and that's why and that's why i think it's useful to make it explicit
1: uh, which is the name of, which is the sort of great theme of the Pittsburgh School of philosophies. like, uh, and, and there's this guy, John McDowell, who is a South African, uh, philosopher, who is sort of one of the most revered philosophers in America today. Uh, but somehow South Africans don't know him anyway. He's, he's sort of sometimes cast as a quietist, uh, which is a sort of term that was used against Wittgenstein. Uh, thought, Wittgenstein's thought being, you know, there's no real disagreements, there's just a misunderstanding of each other's terms, which I think is a bit quixotic. Uh, but, uh, quietism is really the, the opposite. It's like, if you just make it explicit what's going on here, uh, then most people have the conceptual resources to be like, oh, okay. That, yeah, to now figure what out what the right thing to do is yeah. It's starting to make sense I should keep the Gemeinschaft in the Gemeinschaft The Gesellschaft in the shaft. Don't put the Gemeinschaft in the Gesellschaft uh, And vice versa by the way I mean it's a notorious problem of, of uh, economists Whose models You know it's one of my favorite facts uh, Economics is modeled on human beings Being rational utilito- utility maximizing automatons Adam Smith came up with that model and he wrote in the theory of moral sentiments and in The Wealth of Nations, but especially in the theory of moral sentiments, like this is not what people are like. People have all these kinds of family values, they have this, you know, from a purely utiliti- utility maximizing rational point of view, they're crazy because they keep making sacrifices for their children, they, they get much more joy out of spending on their children than on themselves, they often help their neighbors even if there's no uh, way that is going to come back. Like he, he was himself a moral person. And an open-eyed person, and so he saw the morality in others, um, he so he said, "This model of rational egoism this is just a this is just a nice, neat way of modeling something that's very complicated by ignoring a lot of the effects. Uh, but we should when we step out of the model, we shouldn't bring the model with us. Uh, but then economists kind of started doing exactly that, and I think this is the sort of technocratic progressivism you're describing in the us of sort of thinking of people as these rational utility maximizing automatons. And so, uh, you know, really designing everything about life around that assumption, and even letting that into their own lives, uh, and kind of, you know, t- treating treating their social relations and their the the honourable demands of friendship and of love in a in a silly way, uh, to put it lightly, uh, and then they got very excited. <laughs> when behavioral economics came along and was like, hey, guys, we figured out through data that people aren't actually rational utility-maximizing automatons. What a great discovery. We proved Adam Smith was a total idiot. Like, no, (laughs) you just finally got to do what he asked us to do 250 years ago, which was improve on the model by including variables that the the science of the day wasn't good enough to take proper account of.
0: Uh, An interesting way in the South African context, you can kind of see some of this... uh... Uh, infantilizing stuff going on is just look at the way the ANC kind of talks about caters and our people Yeah, they talk about the need for disciplined caters and caters must work hard and be not be selfish and they, it's like they're talking about their sort of trouble, slightly troublesome child who is going to get the stuff the goodies yeah. uh, but they, they just need to remember that they need to be responsible with the car keys or whatever it is there's yeah. no question that they're not going to be given it and they mustn't and they mustn't and they must think about their younger siblings who also need a turn, you
1: know don't bully don't bully the little one, come on, be nice but but no but what go to jail, get prosecuted, be treated no, of course. like an you adult don't send your children who's... to jail and that's a crazy thing, but like family is from from the from the rational point of view it is crazy, and this is what so much so many American movies are about um and some really good novels on friendship, uh, I was mentioning, Amsterdam by Ian McEwen. Like, I think if, you're, if someone in your own family does something wrong, sometimes it's right to shield them from the law. I believe that, you know, I, I think it's a real dilemma. Like, sometimes it's so wrong that you've got to get the law involved. But, like, sometimes, if you're like, you know, I think, I, I think we can deal with this within the family in a way that's, that's going to be better then a little bit of um, illegality uh, can be can be doable. I've got, there's a, there's another sense of it, which is that, um, and this is really depressing me about the lockdown. So I spoke to you. We've we've also spoken about uh, this sort of shame, uh, crime, shame, and reintegration. This book by Robert uh, by Braithwaite. Uh, Australian criminologist who is like the best controlling factor and the best predictor for, the best controlling factor against crime and the best predictor of whether you're going to have a high crime rate, is how society shames people who are criminals. And he noticed amongst the varied, various data studies that he did to back this up, he noticed an interesting thing which is that a lot of societies that have gotten quite technocratic and sophisticated, uh, have developed you know high levels of white collar crime uh, and they haven't figured out how to shame that it's often not treated shamefully like if you get caught cheating your taxes in a lot of countries or you get caught kind of embezzling well, this was
0: Greece's problem wasn't it
1: oh nick you're hitting nails on heads here so and if there's and if there's no shame then it just happens a lot and, and the you fact go bankrupt that they have to beg the germans for money <laughs> And the thing is if it happens a lot that also reduces the shame right because anyone who does get caught Even if their mom does want to shame them would be like dude I don't care that you didn't steal this with a gun you stole this with a pen like it's still stealing sunshine Uh, And I I brought you up better than that. He can be like ma. You're just being very precious dude Look how many other people have done it Uh, Don't get off your high horse so Braith, Braithwaite identified in 89. He was like, this is a serious problem going forward. And how prescient was he? Because at the time, America looked like it was, it was, it was making proper change. H.W. Bush literally arrested and prosecuted thousands of bankers with their uh, a banking fandango in the late 80s. Uh, but then we set ourselves up for the global financial crisis where Goldman Sachs and others were knowingly selling, uh, to quote a movie, dog shit wrapped in. Horseshit uh, uh, to people saying that it was gold, and they made a lot of money out of the bust. They had one of their best couple of quarters ever, and 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 no one no one went to jail for lying. I mean, there was like hardly even the shame was directed towards the entire banking sector rather than towards the particular culprits.
0: It's like and, the way that uh, the ANC always takes collective responsibility for things that will happen in Quarto Camp and stuff like that. When it's collective responsibility, it's the same as no responsibility. Well, it's
1: it's the family. It's this mistaken family thing of like, okay, my kid my kid was playing cricket on the on the pavement and he hit a cricket ball into your window, so I'll pay for it because it's the family's bad, it's, we, as a family we take responsibility for it, uh, but when it's not a kid and it's not a cricket ball and you actually need someone to go to jail, you can't send the whole family to jail. That's crazy. But the flip side of it is like the whole family amongst sort of white people is blamed, like uh, the sins of the forefathers and the and the four forefathers are the sins of the sons who must now lose their farms uh, even if they bought them, even if they've been great employers and whatever. Uh, Because you've got the same kind of logic playing out of family feuding, very Romeo and Juliet. But the thing that I was trying to say about the lockdown is that the ANC's biggest problem has been its corruption and the fact that most South Africans have family values. And and I reckon most South Africans are kind of a bit like me. Like, uh, I mean, I'm lucky my family is super flippin' like... Protestant, kind of honourable in a way, almost to a fault, when it comes to money. Uh, but I, but if they if they were to do something sneaky, I'd probably be like, guys, don't do that again. I'm not going to report you, but yes, it's, you can't do that. Um, but I know that it should be different for government, and I think most South Africans are like that. They they're like, they don't buy wholesale into this. We're one big family thing, and so we must protect each other uh, and just keep it inside the family and just you know whisper naughty naughty in the background. Uh, and so what the NCs needed to do is somehow reduce the shamefulness of corruption and because corruption is a white-collar crime it already is a is, is Not as shameful as hijacking and so on uh, But now what's happened with the lockdown is banning of cigarettes Has literally created like five million people that are breaking the law on a daily or weekly basis right so now we're corrupt too and has created even more ten million people. Who knows how many million people? Twenty, thirty million people who buying illegal liquor. This reminds liquor.
0: me of something, uh, which is now it's normalizing you me, crime. You can you can tell me about whether the, you think this is true or not. But I once heard someone talk about how uh, so uh, Russia has conscription still to this day. Um, uh, most young men are expected to serve in the army for at least a little bit of time. I think it's like a year or two or something like that uh but of course many people don't want to do it it's kind of not very fun it's not very well paid and it uh it's often quite unpleasant so not everyone wants to be conscripted into the army and it's you know it's not really that pleasant it's not that well paid uh so there's an enormous amount of activity and energy put into getting out of military service and this because it's against the law, involves people engaging in a kind of criminality, in a kind of corruption. It's very pervasive. A lot of people uh, and a lot of doctors and a lot of institutions basically make a whole side gig up out of selling you know, excuses for people to get all out of the army and out of their conscription service. And as a result, what it, this, the theory goes that it habitualizes the entire young male Russian population into breaking the law. Um, into accepting corruption as a normal part of their lives. Uh, And Mm -hmm. as a result, it makes corruption on the part of the state easier because kind of, you know, everyone's doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think probably what's telling about that example is that the people who are the most likely to want to dodge conscription are the people who are the most likely to be critical of the incumbent regime. Precisely. Right? So it makes them seem like hypocrites if they're like, well, I'm dodging conscription, but you
0: shouldn't be corrupt. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so it's actually, a, it, it doesn't do that much for, it, it, for Russia in military terms, because you know Russia's military has a lot of problems, um, and manpower is not, not really, I think, the big one at the moment. But uh, it, it, it creates this sort of cynical sense through the whole of society that makes mm. the people easier to control and makes outrage harder to build.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting theory. I'm a bit bleak about Russia right now. I think the referendum is, uh, you know, the referendum to extend, well, giving Putin another two terms and banning gay marriage.
0: Someone said mob bosses don't retire, retire,
1: no. Yeah, man. Anyway, uh, let's cut onto a lighter note, Nick. You had a couple of bullet points that you
0: wanted to hit us with. I don't know if any of them are lighter, but let's set up. Uh, let's set up some flash through some topics, and then we can settle on one we like. Um, so uh, let's stay away from that one. That one's too dark. Uh <laughs> all right, let's Wait, do this one. No, I <laughs> like. No no, 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 we'll come back. We'll come back. Um, so uh, Iran is once again kind of uh, deciding to show its flex its muscles, um, but this time in a very sort of psychological rather than a uh, direct way so I wrote an article at the beginning of of, what this year that uh, the killing of Qasem Soleimani would actually open up the opportunity for the Iranians to kind of pull back slightly um, from from the uh, expansionist military stuff they've been doing for a while and then they got hit with COVID and they were one of the first and It's just been a disaster from top to bottom. Um, They've got a relatively low COVID death count, but it's almost certainly rubbish uh, because Iran is not very truthful about about stuff. Anyway, whether I'm right or wrong, it's not important. What is important is that the Iranians have decided that they're going to demonstrate their military prowess once again by building a fake aircraft carrier that looks like an American aircraft carrier and uh, putting it out on the sea just off the coast of Iran and it's going to be used as target practice for the Navy in a very deliberate (laughs) (laughs) mocking of the United States. Uh, Also, a lot of Iranian um, military propaganda, nationalistic stuff, always features American aircraft carriers being destroyed by Iranian rockets and that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, So that's quite interesting that that's sort of hotting up again in the world. Um, I see the BBC has just interviewed someone, a Chinese doctor, and it's once again kind of confirming that he, he says oh, that God. local, local officials. Oh, did you? Tell us about it. I find it very
1: frustrating. So the BBC gets this Chinese doctor who says, uh, I can confirm. He was in Shenzhen, uh, which is outside of. Uh, so Wuhan is in a province called. Uh, I want to say Huawei, but that sounds like Huawei, which is wrong. Uh,
0: Let me go look it up.
1: Continue with the story. Uh, anyway, so he's you know he he was far away enough that uh, you could tell what was going on was not people coming back from the wet market. Firstly, secondly, it was a whole family that got invest, infected in a cluster, and this was in early to mid January. So it's when uh, Beijing was still claiming that there's no human to human transmission, and that it's just directly from the wet market from the animals. So it's not a big threat. And the World Health so Organization
0: is buying the story.
1: And don't and so don't close your borders, um, and yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's nice that they got this doctor on there, but like, dude, this is not the first time that he's made statements, as far as I can tell, uh, unless I'm conf- unless I'm confusing his name, uh, and this is definitely not the first time that we've known that there was a family cluster in Shenzhen that had the virus long before the uh, Beijing regime admitted to it in fact and this this nor even, was this the only case so this it feels i just, sorry just to finish the thought the thing that frustrated me about the bbc interview is that they were acting as if this is kind of a new story as if this is breaking news and yeah. so partly that's just like media you know you always want to make things fresh if that's your business but partly it also felt like a cynical act in timing because what happened is that uh you, you know you look at the data on countries that did better and worse, and the best predictor I can find for doing better and worse, uh, in terms of managing case numbers, is how quickly you closed your borders and how quickly you started managing them, vetting them. And so, Taiwan was the very first. Singapore, South Korea, Japan, all those far eastern countries around China were like, "Dude, we don't. Want, we know about flu. We know about SARS. We know about MERS. We do not want this." We, so we we're going to know be cap- about China and how they're not very truthful. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the West. Uh, even after evidence has come forward, even after Dr. Lee has disappeared, even after the first Chinese doctor to, you know, Dr. Lee kind of codes the virus and then uh, the guy who died, I can't remember his name, but he, you know, treated patients and then he died of it himself. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, is like, okay, well, we need to close our borders on China and and Nancy Pelosi and company are like, well, you're racist. So yeah. that was very dumb. And the, then uh, and then the right wing, I, I've got to say, was also very dumb in not closing its border on Europe, even when Europe was showing uh, sig- significant case
0: numbers. Well, because it, the right started off by saying we need to close our borders to this foreign menace. And then it changed its mind and said, no, actually, the virus isn't a big deal. You big babies. Yeah.
1: So they they would have America would have done much better if they just closed their border on, on Europe three weeks before it did. Um, be that as it may. Uh so 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 mistakes were made on both sides of the aisle. But the point is everything there was this sort of racial fixation that that clouded everyone's judgment. And the BBC is obviously dude, it just is anti-Trump in its coverage. It is also got a racial fixation. Uh you can tell by its coverage of South African Coronavirus management. I mean, they held us as like the world's greatest coronavirus managing place when we definitely weren't. The evidence was already clear that we weren't um, because they had maternalistic, you know, white burden supremacists
0: who yeah. like want to pat, I, pat I us I on will, the head like good little children. And so I will now. I something as- in their defense. They have been pretty good at reporting what's going on in South Africa, probably better than our local media, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Uh, they, they did have- that
0: story on the Eastern Cape. And yeah. how awful the hospitals are there, and they are also one of this uh, the the news outlets that's got this headline coronavirus in South Africa. Why the low fatality rate might may be misleading, which is something we should touch on just now.
1: Yeah, no. So the the on the ground reporters are great. The, the investigators who are getting into hospitals and showing the screw ups. That's the, fantastic. The editorial
0: line and the opinion writing. It's not so good.
1: Yeah. So uh, and and this is all to say that it's that that. Uh, uh, the Republican side of the American political uh, system tried very hard to say, look, anything that's bad about this virus, you've got to blame it on China. And saying everything that's bad about it is stupid. But then the left-wing side was like, no, you mustn't blame China for anything. And anytime like the, you do this, you're basically just being a racist. And so like for the BBC media, now, six, yeah, to, five to months up, later, six weird. six months later, to be like, Oh well, we just figured out that, uh, and then they and then they literally nested it inside the very next thing that came was a sort of takedown of Donald Trump, in which the clip that they played was, you know, they've got him, they've got like a, a BBC reporter saying things while you see the image of him, and then you cut to finally you get voice of him, and all he says is, "That's China." And then it cuts back to BBC voice. And you can just hear the tittering little laughs. He's such a silly... He says China, you know. Like, he's racist. Like, ah, oh man, it just felt like... Well, it the, felt the, silly the, and the, manipulative in a way that's not... It's. I mean, it's not convincing. It's not like I'm worried, like, they're confusing the world. Uh,
0: no, they're just, like, no. not
1: living up to the standards that they should live up to.
0: Um, no, I agree with that completely. Uh, but also, there's this whole... Um, Oh, I've completely forgotten my point. Anyway, <laughs> let's... Uh, Sorry, you did stick up for the BBC, which is very honorable of you, Nick. Yes, I just like I stick up for the BBC. I'm not a big fan of the BBC at all. Um, uh, before I forget, another point. Why don't, you've looked at the dates a little bit on this. Um, I've only done a very cursory glance, but the, there's an indication right now that the COVID death toll is... Not, in South Africa is not particularly accurate. Um, I, and I don't think we should be particularly surprised by this. So as many people have pointed out, um, it's actually quite difficult to work out who's died of COVID. Um, yeah. There's this question of, was it the COVID that killed them or was it the heart condition they already had? Was it the COVID that killed them or was it the fact that they you know, uh, had a cancer? Was it the COVID that killed them or was it diabetes? Yeah. Um, these are all complicated questions, you also have problems of kind of a clerical nature where someone tests positive for COVID, then they get hit by a bus like three months later, they haven't been taken off the system, and yeah. as a result, when they die from the bus, they kind of get in, uh, you know counted as a COVID statistic. Uh, that was a problem in the UK, and I believe in Florida. Uh, but then there's also other problems, which is that people just don't fill in the paperwork of people who've actually died of COVID, or they don't test the person who's sick with COVID, and so... Um, you get a scenario where someone is marked as dying of flu or pneumonia, but actually it was COVID. Um, So it's very difficult to actually work out the death rate. So one of the things that people have been doing is they've been looking at what we call excess deaths. So they look at how many deaths normally occur in this particular period in a normal year, um, and then they average it out over like a decade. And they say, and how many deaths are occurring now? Because generally speaking, when someone dies, it gets reported. And then you don't have to worry about what the reasons are. Now it's not the most accurate tool in the world, because you can make mistakes. You can, uh, you know, you could have an increase in suicides, let's say, because of the economic downturn, um, and then that can skew your data because you might think that, oh, look at all these extra people who are dying, um, on our graph here, uh, but actually it's not all COVID. It could be something like a suicide. Yeah. But, that being said, uh, South Africa's excess mortality death which is kind of a bit rough and should take it with a pinch of salt. But it suggests that the number of people who have died from COVID uh, as of what, last week or the week before, could be as high as 17,000 rather than the sort of 6,700 where we're currently sitting at as of this recording. Um, Gabriel, have you looked at the data to suggest that this is true or not true? Yeah, I have looked into it. Um, I think one of the problems is
1: that... Uh, so, so, this is coming from a report, I think, from the SAMRC, the sort of uh, official council. And they, the thing to one, one thing, you can just see it on the graph, is their baseline figure. They've sort of got this sort of curly snake uh, that rises up as you hit flu season. That's what you'd expect every year. You'd expect more deaths now than usual because we're in winter, we're in the thick of it. Um, And there's like a middle line, and then there's two a dotted line above it and a dotted line below it. That's what makes it a snake, right? And the middle line is like the the mean average that you'd expect, but there's a variance you'd expect it to go above or below. And the baseline that they use is basically on the low end of that snake, of what you'd usually expect in a year. And the reason that they they try and justify that in the study by saying, uh, you know, we started to notice a downward trend in excess deaths Uh, before coronavirus was really killing many people. And we attribute that to the lockdown, uh, kind of saving lives because there's less road accident deaths, less uh, homicides, uh, less accidents that are generally related to people going around, work-related accidents, stuff like that. And so we're using a very low baseline to get this higher estimate. Now that's not to say that the estimate I mean our excess deaths are beyond What you'd expect in an average year They're sort of outside the range of expectation So we definitely are looking at real excess deaths And that's notable because a lot of other countries uh, The UK, the US, they're looking like they're hitting the point Where their excess deaths Are getting back in line with what you'd expected This month of the year in any other year Well
0: the, the US I think has gone has, has lost progress on that They were about to sort of hit normal levels And I think it's gone a little bit back And reverse, not hectically so, but enough to be concerning. Yeah, Um, yeah. but but on this calculation of the excess death things, the U.S. could have anywhere above two hundred thousand deaths, rather than the one hundred and fifty thousand it it officially records, and uh, they have a pretty good data gathering system, so that would be probably a reasonable, reasonably accurate guess.
1: Yeah, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna get good data from the U.S. But I think in South Africa, the problem is that. Lockdown deaths are a very serious consideration. people not getting cancer treatments, people killing themselves, people like not having been out then going out and then binging, also people just living less healthy lifestyles um, uh, not just you know stress related is huge, not just stress related also just being clumped in and I think that uh if you use the low, yeah if you use the lower baseline uh because lockdown. You know, save lives. You've then also got to recognise that lockdown is going to cost lives, and this is a problem that listeners should be attentive to whenever they read about excess deaths, uh, because there is a tendency to ascribe all excess deaths to uh, the disease, to the plague, uh, whereas some excess deaths, and in this country, I've got a suspicion that in this country, it's going to be more than half of excess deaths are going to not be plague directly, plague related, and that it's going to be. That there's a sort of reputational gambit that the that the sort of stenographers of the government are going to have to play where they're like, okay, if we say that the government is underreporting deaths of COVID, then we're saying they're kind of bad in that sense. But if we're saying they're under-reporting deaths in terms of COVID because of this kind of calculation that we're doing where all excess deaths are just attributed to the plague, which is not really our fault, then that actually makes them come out looking good. If you if you drill down into the data and you find, no, most excess deaths are not coming from COVID or even things that you could a- attribute to the plague but actually come from uh, maladministration and so on, then that's really going to be bad. Because what would you rather be, in, a government that can't count or a government that kills people? Uh the former and so i do think that's something to to watch out for like i said i've read the study i think it's inconclusive at this stage what exactly the distribution is i think that part of what's going to be telling yeah, us i think is i think there's a demographic breakdown it doesn't offer yeah. what you really want is a demographic breakdown of those deaths
0: um that'll yeah, so proportionately older people it might suggest uh, COVID stuff right
1: it's going to start shining light that's going to start shining light
0: so so I think I think with all things the thing to remember on this is that uh, to take everything kind of with a pinch of salt to be cautious in your calls and your uh, estimations I mean we've seen over and over and over again just how you know we always get stuff wrong with this with this plague remember how masks used to be a bad idea and other mandatory <laughs> all over the world um and so the data, the real data picture will emerge. Um, but one should consider all of these arguments going forward to kind of work out where we are in things. Um, you know, we it's probably worse than the government says, but it's also not. It's it's probably worse than the officials figures say, but it's probably not as bad as the government says it is. Yeah.
1: now very sound. Very sound. What's our um, next bullet point? I
0: I I don't think we have time for another full one. Um, I had. Uh, Cold War II Electric Boogaloo and the Genocide of the Uyghur people, um, which I think we do not have time for because that is that is something quite quite uh yeah, that's hefty that we'll need to think about. Um another one was why did World War II go on for so long? The psychology of fascist regimes and why governments are madder than you think. But uh, let's let's just save that for another time. I think that's it for today really. Um just to conclude our early discussion, uh Stop treating everything like a family and treat people like adults. It's yeah. very similar to our previous piece of advice, which is don't be racist.
1: <laughs> and and also buy gold. By the way, gold has never been more precious. So you yes. heard it here first. dude. If you bought gold, if you took this podcast seriously and bought gold two years ago, then you can't sue us because we told you we're not financial advisors, but you'd also be like much richer than you are. So that's, so that's oh, yeah. something to know. And, the old crickets and- sometimes write about things. And and yeah, and on the and on the treating people like adults, you know, here's something that's great about adults. You can work with adults. Like Christmas, yes. maybe not so great with like a bunch of strangers. Uh you know, Africa Burn Party, it can kind of work out, but it doesn't last forever. If you want to add value, if you want to do something
0: useful, like you know, leave your kids at home, send them to school. Yeah. Everyone knows this. Uh, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? I've I've got one that I can uh, share with everyone very quickly, um, which is if you have time and you want to read about something wacky and important, uh, go read about the Nation of Islam. So this is a black supremacist group in the United States. Um, they've had a, quite an influential role on, uh, on, on, shall we say, the idea of blackness in America for quite a long time. Their current leader is a dude called Louis Farrakhan, who's a very unpleasant chap. Um, but the Nation of Islam over the years has had a couple of famous people who belong to it. One of them was, of course, Muhammad Ali, um, who was what his name was Car- his original name was Carson Clay, I think, uh, and he changed it to Cassius. Muhammad Ali when he Cassius Clay, sorry, and he changed it to Muhammad Ali when he joined the Nation of Islam. And the other one was, of course, Malcolm X, um, who had a foiling out with the Nation of Islam and may potentially have been murdered by them at the end of his life, when he rejected their their view of the world. Uh, but what you will find about this very influential group that continues to have prominent figures, um, for example, Ice Cube, the actor and singer, uh, is is a fan of the Nation of Islam. It's a group that pretends to be Muslim, but it's actually completely a heretical sect. It has very weird beliefs, one of which is that white people were manufactured in a lab by an evil scientist called Yakub 6,000 years ago and that he built white people specifically for the purpose of tormenting the darker-skinned races. Uh, and that, uh, anyway, it's very weird I'm stuff. I'm
1: convinced. Are you trying to convert to me? <laughs> because I'm feeling,
0: I feel like converting right now. Like, where do I sign up? <laughs> well, what's interesting to me is when I learned about the Nation of Islam and what they actually believed, you know, I kind of heard about them. I was an undergraduate of university. And, of course, because I was at Wits and, you know, all praise be to racial nationalists, uh, we were studying the wonderfulness of Malcolm X and how he was right about everything. One of the sources of Boston that they gave us to read casually mentioned that he believed this thing about Yakub the white sci- the, the scientist who built, made white people. And I sort of double take. I said, wait, wait, wait. This is <laughs> the guy we're <laughs> taking seriously? They <laughs> had this crazy, crazy idea of how the world works? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. This, this, is, this, is, this is a little bit off. Um, anyway, so that was... <laughs> that was quite something. Uh, go look them up; they are important, um, and they are also really wacky. And then, if anyone brings up their leaders in in some conversation you're you're in, just casually drop some of those lines, and you will probably win the argument immediately. Uh, Gabriel, do you? Big. Yeah, drop some curve. Do you have any uh, any recommendations?
1: Yeah, I kind of wanted to recommend that our our listeners uh, check out our comment section. Because we had a a, a, a it wasn't blinding... on a
0: It was on uh, the Daily Friend show.
1: Okay, we had a, we had a very insightful comments on the Daily Friend show about Mars and what a terrible yes. idea it is, and how if you even <laughs> if you even think about how lovely it would be to go to Mars, as like a as a metaphorical exercise in trying to stoke people's ideas. In excellence, you're, you're evil.
0: Um, um and also but, uh, conspiracy theorists are good. Was the other point that that comment made? There you
1: go. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, my recommendation is just to think about fire stations. So yeah, this wonderful thing last week where like the, you know, a hospital, two hospitals had been burnt down. One of them was in its first week of operation after having been built. Uh, and some four decided to burn it down in protest, I suppose, against who knows what white supremacy. And, uh, And then, dude, someone must have figured it out. Like burn down a hospital, and the hospital burns down, but the firefighters make sure that the fire doesn't spread. Burn down another hospital, same thing happens. And they're like, ah, I see. (laughs) We're burning down the wrong things. We need to burn down a fire station. Genius. So, like, (laughs) root cause analysis is something I'm a big fan of. Uh, (laughs) Uh, It's what they teach you at engineering school I'm told by my engineering friends And we've got some real root cause analysts here And I think, uh, you know, if you do want to split the world into two divisions You know, people who who put family values in the right place People who put them in the wrong place, maybe that's one But I think an even simpler one is like People who want to put out fires And people who want to burn down fire stations I think that kind of, I think that's, I think
0: that's a hot <laughs> take. Don't like someone that. write a book about how the world has gone mad and made the firemen the, the burners of things, the yes. arsonists? Yes. Uh, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit yeah, yeah. 451. Uh, so, so good to see that we're really taking that spirit to heart. Because while China, uh, someone said that um, uh, we get to live out all dystopian futures in the modern world, right? Uh, China is doing 1984, um, Japan is doing a brave new world. And America is doing Fahrenheit four five one.
1: Yeah, well, and so are we. It's great. Yeah, so are we. <laughs> fire, yeah, so just so just figure out: are you are you are you into putting down fire stations or putting out fires? Like, and look, I'm not saying you can't be both, but if you if you think you can be both, please uh, write a comment, send us an email,
0: tell us what you're thinking. I feel like this is because I think I think a- everyone. Everyone agrees that the fire station is the symbol of oppression, of the boot of the government upon our necks, and if we tear it down. (laughs) But anyway, let's call it to a close there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Keep that flag of liberty flying, and have a lovely week, everyone.